Hello, my name's Peter McMillan. I'm the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. And today we're broadcasting from the lands of the Larrakia people here in Darwin. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to all other First Nations uh, listeners across Australia. And maybe if you're listening from overseas, uh, our respects to your elders as well. We've been having a lot of fun over the last weeks recording our first sessions of uh, Sharing the Couch. And today we've got another really interesting guest, really looking forward to this conversation. And today uh, we're speaking with Erin Turner. Erin Turner is a consumer advocate that has worked with a broad range of governments and regulators to make markets fairer for Australians. She's worked in public, so, sorry, she has worked in policy and government relations roles for various not-for-profits, including the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, or the CBAA, and the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network, ACAN. Erin was Director of Campaigns and Communications at Choice from 2014 to 2022. She divided her time between helping their campaigners fight for better laws and working to help their experts get their messages to the world through the media or through social media. Erin originally joined Choice as a policy and campaigns advisor, calling for fairer treatment of people in the credit card market and fighting for financial advisors to treat consumers fairly. She has an arts degree with a major in archaeology and a master of politics and public policy. Erin is also a board member of the Australian Financial Complaints Authority and the chair of the Financial Rights Legal Centre Board. In March 2022, Erin was appointed Chief Executive Officer of Consumer Policy Research Centre. In doing so, she brings experience in governance, policy, communications and research. And in taking up this role at the time, Erin said, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to work with the CPRC team to reimagine how markets can work well for all Australians. Erin Turner, welcome to Sharing the Couch. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on board. I've got to say, the uh, since watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, archaeology seems like an incredible profession. What what was that about? <laughs> oh, look, I, I um, so I did a Bachelor of Arts with a with a major in archaeology. Went on one or two digs and quickly realised I loved the theory. I love thinking about like what makes people human. How do we know how the past worked? It's actually got a lot in common with public policy. I hate dirt. <laughs> <laughs> outside I love being inside with my computer so the career path wasn't for me uh, but it was it was great to spend some time when I was younger it's good to know it's good to know what you don't like to do isn't it from an early age probably not so good if you're 50 yes <laughs> so Erin um public policy and politics uh what why why public policy and, and politics uh what what was that what was there for you that really attracted you to those areas I feel like I um, I think a lot of people kind of don't know that this is a career option when they when they start out. That was certainly my case. Um, it wasn't something I was even aware was a possibility. Um, but for me, public policy and politics is part of it. It's about having conversations about how we can make our world better. Um, you know, just how do we get everyone on the same page? How do we change minds? How do we find a way forward that no one's thought about before? How do we deal with really unprecedented times? Um, they're, they're really important conversations. And I, I think it's a real privilege to have a role where I get to be part of those conversations and bring other people on board. Absolutely. And what does good public policy look like to you? Oh, that's a good one. I, look, I think um, ideas that are tested, mm. particularly by people who are affected by those ideas, um, something, and I think it's really relevant to the housing debate generally, broadly in Australia. It doesn't always feel like every body has a voice in those debates so people who rent or people who are outside of 
you know, uh, buying a home and that kind of market don't often feel like they have the same weight in discussions, particularly nationally. I think good public policy considers, you know, if we're using a market as a way to distribute something, you don't always need to use a market. Um, how do we make sure it works for everyone? And how do we make sure everyone's voices are heard? That, that for me is a real precondition. And it sounds like that involves a fair amount of activity and effort to get the voices of people affected and those with ideas. Yeah, I think it is. It's a lot of listening, discussions, facilitation um, and testing. Um, I know it's it can be frustrating. A lot of public policy processes, you know, they they involve consultations on consultations on consultations. There's lots of ways to do that poorly. But the good ones are about putting ideas out and then going, well, what if? And getting those counter views and different perspectives, um, really testing ideas. Because yeah, something like, how do we make sure everyone has a safe, healthy home? That that concept's too important to just make changes in ways that could pull mm. the rug out from someone. Absolutely. I'm interested seeing you mention the word consultation. And I remember in the, it was in the 80s, uh, late 80s, when I was working with BHP, they rolled out a, a, a program on consultation for unions, uh, staff, uh, employees, etc. They talked about what consultation was and what it wasn't, and they yeah. often said it's it's not consensus. That's a kind of uh, that's the kind of uh, message that I remember. That consultation doesn't necessarily mean consensus, but it does involve listening and taking into account ideas, not going in with a predetermined position. I guess sometimes uh, when we work, whether it be with government or other organisations or whoever it may be, we sometimes hear about consultation programs and they feel like they're a little bit of a box ticking exercise. Yeah, I've definitely been involved in those consultations that have that. Um, and it's, you know, when there's a really short window and you're not sure if your ideas are going to be heard, it can be a really frustrating process. I think the great consultations I've been part, part of, you know, they often involve writing a submission, typing something up, but they will also bring people together. Um, I, I really like it when a process brings together different people with different perspectives, um, because I think it's as important as an advocate to listen to what others are saying as it is to put your case forward, um, to understand where everyone's coming from in that room, even if you wildly disagree with them. I think it's always important to do the listening and, and great consultation processes. I think they facilitate that. And what, what role does data and evidence-based play? We hear a lot of that about evidence-based uh, decision-making. What do you have to, what are you seeing on that? Sometimes data's hard to come by. Yeah, well, that's actually was exactly what I was going to say. Um, data feels like a bit of an unequal game. And I, I, Consumer Policy Research Centre, where I'm at now, it's, it's a not-for-profit think tank. We're, we're fairly rare. Um, it's a real privilege to have a role where we get to think about building data sets in public policy. But um, in my experience in debates, and quite often I'll be in discussions with, you know, big banks or big telcos or um, real estate lobbies, organisations that have money can buy more evidence. And there's different qualities of evidence. Um, sometimes um, as a not-for-profit advocate, you can feel like you're, you're bringing a stick to a gunfight <laughs> when it comes to evidence. <laughs> like you just don't have the same weapons as others may have in a consultation process. And, and again, I think if you think about a good design consultation process, that that should recognize that. Mm. It should try to fill data gaps where you know, advocates can't pay for fancy economic modeling every time there's a consultation, but quite often businesses can, and they can yes. shape that in ways that really affect the outcome. So, um, you know, I, evidence is important. It's really important to understand what's happening and the, the specific reasons behind problems to get to great solutions. But particularly in some consultation processes, it's just, it's always so important to be aware of where evidence comes from, who shaped it and why it exists um, and where are the gaps. Absolutely. Uh, and in terms of um, 
the work at Choice. I had a couple of lines of, of I was going to run down there, but we'll come back to those. But in terms of the time at Choice, because I think it continues on from this theme of um, consumer action and, and policy, good policy, um, what were some of the kind of highlights that came out? When you think of campaigns that worked well, what were the key success factors in that? Oh, that's a great question. I, so I loved working at Choice. It's such a special institution. Um, and it, it, it um, I think one of the things that makes it really powerful is its membership base. So Choice is a not-for-profit. It has, oh, when I left relatively recently, 230,000 members. So paying people who pay to be part of this institution. And when Choice is at its best, it's using people's perspectives and views as a way to make a case for change. Um, and, and it collaborating with others as well, because um, Choice's membership base isn't, you know, necessarily nationally representative. There are people who are very interested in buying the right fridge often or who have a real respect for certain kinds of data and approaches um, and can afford a Choice membership. Um, one of the campaigns I worked on just before I left was a partnership with West Justice, the community legal centre down in Victoria. Um, and we worked with a few other experts all around a specific issue around how insurers were billing people who rent um, when there'd been an accident or a disaster in the home and a landlord insurance being claimed. It, it was one of the most predatory issues I have seen. Mm -hmm. um, people were getting, we had one guy who got a $300,000 bill. Someone got a $100,000 bill for things like an accidental fire in their home. Mm -hmm. So there's absolutely, I think, predatory behavior. Yeah. But what we ended up getting all insurers to commit to stop this which I, I was thrilled with. Um, and in part, that was really collaborating with others. Um, so West Justice knew this issue inside out. They had amazing expertise and case studies that the choice um, community couldn't bring forward necessarily. Mm -hmm. But we also worked with choice members. Um, we found some choice members who were actually affected by this problem, who were brave enough to speak in the media. And we also polled choice members, many of whom are landlords themselves, and said, do you think this practice is fair? And everyone said no. <laughs> it was like, no, this is absolutely, this isn't why we get landlord insurance. We don't want you bankrupting our renters. Please stop. And, and it really helped make this case for change. And mm. I think that, um, you know, that combination of people power and expertise and collaboration, for me, that is, it's hard. It takes yeah. time. But that, 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 that's the, all the essential ingredients for success. That sounds fascinating, and I, and I can sense the real energy and passion there in, in that work that you do, and it would take time, some of these campaigns. There must be um, frustrations along the line. Things are going to take time to get through. What do you think it, what are the, What do you think ultimately it takes sometimes for government to think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm persuaded by that. That's that's good public policy. Uh, it, does it does it require weighted numbers? Does it require a little bit of uh, a little bit of I guess um, attention in the media or to resonate with a broader public? What does it take normally? Uh, you know, I would, I find it depends on the issue and it depends on the person you're trying to convince. One minister will need something different to another because everyone, tick, every, the thing that makes us tick is all different. Mm. Um, but I broadly, I'd say th there does need to be some data. You need to show the evidence of a problem. So numbers matter. But numbers alone don't, don't really bring the heart. Mm. So numbers plus stories seem to be those good preconditions when you have that and it, it's very hard to do, but when you have someone who's brave enough to tell their story about their experiences, I, I find that um, it just makes people sit up and pay attention more. Um, you know, yeah. I, I had this as well. When you say go to talk to politicians, it's yeah. it's one thing for you to go and talk to them. It's another thing for you to bring someone who's been affected by a problem with you and have them explain what this means to them. It just it, it has a different power. 
I think that's that's really uh, interesting that you raise that, and that does go back to where I was going to, uh, I guess, go before around social media and the power of lived experience. And I know it seems increasingly when we get requests to talk to the media about home, homelessness or housing or renting, the media really are looking for people with who are in that experience. They don't just want to hear the numbers alone or the statistics as dire as, as they might be. I mean, there is a story there, but to, to get that to resonate uh, with their audience and I guess with uh, people in politics as well, we need to hear that uh, experience, don't we, from on the ground. That's it. And I, I also want to recognise how hard that is sometimes, particularly not everyone's in a place where they feel comfortable or are even able to share their stories. Um, so as people who work with and say represent the views of sometimes whole communities, it, I'm always really aware that you know, we want the story, we want the case study, we want someone who feels brave enough to speak to the media, which is a very intimidating thing, but a lot of support needs to go around that and it can't happen in every case. It's always heartbreaking when you know you've got a great story, but you don't, you, and you can't push someone to tell the story, no. you don't have the case study. That's right. That's right. And uh, I think every time we see a person who's willing to speak up or, or wants to speak up actually in some cases, incredibly, incredibly brave, people have been through some very traumatic experiences, but still think, that their story needs to be told and all power to those people, but it's not for everyone, obviously. No, and I think actually thinking about, say, renting, I, I know we've often worked with people um, who are nervous about telling their stories and being branded as a bit of an upstart because, you know, I think people who rent, are, I'm one of them, you really are aware that, aware that the next time you apply for a rental, you know, there's a chance that you'll be Googled, uh, mm. that a news story might pop up and you don't want to be seen as someone who makes a complaint sometimes. And you're worried about those future consequences. That, that speaks to a much bigger challenge in the private rental market, but Absolutely. it does make that storytelling hard. Absolutely. And because um, one of your uh, standout strengths is, uh, is in social media as well, what would you say to those uh, watching on in working in frontline service organisations, maybe charities, uh, not-for-profits, that, um, you know, they're busy working day in, day out, uh, assisting people in need. Uh, what does the role, what does the role of social media, what, role, what can the role of social media be as a vehicle for change? I think it comes back to great storytelling. Um, when I see people on who are doing, say, frontline work, do it really well, being able to share what you see during the day, that that's stuff that other people, it's going to be so common for you. It's going to be daily for you, but it's stuff that other people don't see and don't realise the reality of. So I think sharing your perspective is, it, it's a very powerful thing. Um, I Something I found when I was at Choice, we moved to encourage more people across the whole organization, you know, 150 staff members, where they felt confident, just telling more about what their daily life looked like, you know, record mm. what it looks like to be in the consumer test kitchen, happiest place on earth, um, or talk about, you know, the investigations work that you're doing and, and try to, where, where it doesn't take too much time, you can definitely overdo all of this, but, mm. you know, share more about your world and be human because that, that's actually what people want. Absolutely. Hey, we're going to get on to renting just in a moment, but before we do, I just wanted to ask how the opportunity came up at the Consumer Policy Research Centre. What What's the work you're doing there? And is it similar to Choice or a little bit different? What's the... well, it's a bit more focused. So, because at Choice, I am um, part of my role was definitely about policy and research and government relations. Um, this this role is all about it. Um, I, I get to be nerdier. <laughs> I'm very happy with that. Um, we're a think tank. We're all about putting ideas out in the world about how markets can just work in ways that are better and fairer. Um, I get to work with these amazing researchers and policy experts every day. 
Um, and we, we, we take a bit of time to think through these issues and think about, you know, how do we progress debates? Like, how can we make housing fairer? Or how can businesses use data in ways that helps people rather than takes advantage of them? So they're, they're the big issues we, we throw around. That's really exciting. So do you have a team working with you and you're sharing these ideas or because uh, it's a startup, it's a new organization, right? So yeah. how are you deciding where the priorities are and opportunities? Yeah, we're relatively new. We've got funding from the Victorian government. Um, we've had four years of funding, but another four. Very exciting. Um, we look at issues where either other people don't have the time at the moment to pick something apart or yep. that um, we think can be used to help progress a debate. So over the next uh, year, we're going to be looking at issues like consumer problems with digital and data worlds. So um, we've just released a report around how companies can use websites in ways that manipulate your decisions, dark patterns, um, they're really harmful. Um, and we're, we're trying to get regulators to take action on that. Um, we're gonna do some work around the housing market, um, really Victorian based with an eye to say what are the quality issues people might be experiencing in the private rental market. We're just scoping that one out. Um, we're looking at sustainable consumption. So how can we help more people um, make the decisions we know that they actually want to make. So how do we remove barriers to make it easier for people to live lower carbon lives and um, redress? We're also thinking about how more markets can make it easier and fairer when you have a complaint. Again, very very rent relevant to the, the whole housing market. <laughs> that sounds like a very exciting agenda. Pretty pretty wide ranging if uh, and lots of scope, I guess, to look at many different interesting challenges and problems that we're facing out there. Yeah, we're, our, our work is really about looking at a range of markets and kind of the comparison. So, you know, right. where is it working well? Where is it not? What can we do better? Right. Let's turn to renting. Um, so we do you think in, in this day and age with the pandemic, we up here in the Northern Territory, I know right across um, regional Australia, but also in the cities as well, we saw regional rent surge, right? I mean, I'm, I had neighbours underneath the, the unit where, where we lived. I had a, had a young child who was, I think, about four months old. I had two other young kids at school. Both were professional nurses. And they had a they faced a rent increase of, I think it was $120 a week. They just had to leave. There was no other option. They couldn't find anywhere else to rent. In this day and age, I mean, it seems to me that it's a, it can be a very tough gig as a, as a renter. You don't have a lot of um, you don't have a lot of certainty and so forth, um, and I guess one of the things around renting, unlike other things like utilities, sometimes there are re regulators that look at price rises that are acceptable for telecommunications or other or other or other facets of life, but we don't have that for renting. Why is that? Do you think? I think it is a really good question to ask because when I think about I, I think about things in markets because consumer advocate, it's not, always, it's not always the right way to think about things because I think housing is so much more than a market. It's, mm. it's home. Yeah. But um, every other essential we have, whether it's water, electricity, telco, um, mortgages even, there's either a formal mechanism to make sure that price rises are reasonable or capped mm. or, you know, in emergency situations that we can pull a lever and something happens. Or there's actually quite a lot of pressure for big institutions to have fair pricing the debate about mortgage interest rates is probably the best comparison but renting seems so disconnected from that there's no discussion around what's fair what's reasonable it's just very much what the market can bear yeah. and, and for something so essential like a home I, I think it's quite a it doesn't work no. is the 
the outcome. It's not working. I think it's also interesting that a lot of um, regions, um, most places in Australia are wanting to grow their economies. They're wanting to attract people to live there. I mean, there's been massive campaigns across regional Australia to get people to come and live and work in the regions and we don't have don't have sufficient housing stock, which is having a big impact on prices. And literally in, in some regional centres and territory, you can't find a place to rent. Uh, certainly you couldn't find a place that's affordable or suitable at all. So it kind, it kind of shoots us in the foot, doesn't it? If we're saying we want to grow the economy, but we can't get people here because there's nowhere to live or it's too expensive. Completely. I actually, um, so I spend part of my time in Melbourne. That's where, where work is. But my um, partner lives and works in Dubbo. Um, so I, I pop back between the two. Um, and Dubbo is one of those affected places. Um, it's very difficult to buy a house, but it's even more difficult to rent a place. And you, we keep hearing these stories of people who, you know, generations, that families have lived there for decades. Mm. And suddenly they're locked out of a, of a rental market and having to go further and further and further afield and into accommodation that is less and less suitable. It's, this isn't what a thriving city looks like and it's not what people need. No. Um, so it, it, there's gotta be some solutions. Part of it has to be about pricing. Part of it has to be thoughts around markets, mm. but um, it's definitely not something we wanna see ratcheting up. Do you think there's a case for harmonization of state and territory laws around a thing like renting? Because if you're a renter in Dubbo or a renter in Melbourne, why should it be, why should it vary so much in terms of how much notice you get at the end of your lease or what minimum standards you might have for the property? I, I, yes, it's the short answer on that one. Um, and I, I want to recognize it's hard because, um, you know, I think some of your um, watch viewers will know. Um, renting and most housing happens um, is regulated at a state level, but I, I often view it from the consumer law perspective. Consumer law used to be a state responsibility, and then all the states and territories went, this is nuts. It doesn't make sense to have one rule on this side of the border and one rule on the other. Um, we, we get so many gains from consistency and coordination, so they we have a federal model that's coordinated at a state level and regulated at a state level. It can work, yeah. and it's better, it's better for everyone whether it's a consumer or a business or a regulator to have mm. that national consistency so i would i would love to see that <laughs> <laughs> i've done it with work workplace health and safety in some cases they've done cross-border regulation as you said you know it's almost like somebody in albury could have a different uh set of provisions someone in wodonga just across exactly. the river it's quite crazy isn't it um so back in 2017 i think it was uh, you're involved in a campaign uh called disrupted and then unsettled or I might have got that around the other way but there were two <laughs> other way around damn I knew I would do that there, there were two landmark reports that Choice uh, released in partnership with the National Association of Tenant Organisations or the other NATO as we call them and, <laughs> and National Shelter what was that about how did that come to be? Um, so Adrian Pasowski is probably the reason it came about because he's just one of those amazing advocates who makes things happen um, but really it was um uh, at the time at Choice, um, it was us stepping back and going like, where do people need the most help across all the different consumer markets? And private rental sticks out. It is, for all the reasons we've started to talk through, one of those markets where it doesn't work like other ones. It's, it's so important and how everything works is so poor that it, mm -hmm. we need to give it a bit of attention. Um, so we did some work with the Good NATO and National Shelter um, to figure out what the research gaps were. And there are great data sets out there about affordability and pricing, but particularly at the time in 2017, there wasn't a lot of nationally consistent data sets around what's the experience of being a renter. Mm. So we um, we looked at, you know, what's it like to apply? What's the quality of a home that someone's in? Mm. Um, what's it like to exit? 
and also bringing forward some of the things that I think as someone who anyone who rents will know um, aspects around like fear you know the fear of making a complaint or the fear of using your rights or speaking up or even just asking for a repair yeah. um, that, that's really baked into the system because we don't have great protections. Mm. Yeah it's quite it's quite interesting isn't it that 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 fear of asking for repairs to be done or complaining that things aren't getting done or or being I guess brave enough to ask can we get the rent reduced even because um, I know um, in the unit that we used to rent before we we bought up here that um, the market was suggesting rates had fallen quite significantly we knew from other apartments that they you know the asking price was a bit lower than what we were renting and I just thought well you know what we're happy here and and if I ask for a reduction what's stopping the landlord from saying well I can find someone else who is willing to pay that price and then where where do I live yeah, yeah. it's, kind of, it's yeah, the consequences are so high aren't they yeah and the fear is not unreasonable that that's what really came through in these two reports one in 2017 and then late 2018 uh, the, the fear is well grounded um particularly victoria is the first state to start to chip away at it but every other state and territory in australia you can be asked to leave with no reason and that just means that while there might be some on the books laws around retaliatory evictions mm -hmm. i think anyone who's a renter knows that this exists and just they're rightly worried. Yeah. And uh, does it have to be that way? For some countries, I think you can rent for, for a long time and make um, changes, even like reasonable changes. Make yes. it home. <laughs> Renting can be better. And I think this this is often gets lost in our housing debates nationally, you know, when everyone's talking about we need more first home buyers, how do we get first home buyers into the market? And like there's a lot of reasons why people want to might might want to buy a home. Sure. But one of them is that the being a renter is awful <laughs> people want to leave this market and that's the comes down to lack of security of tenure lack of control over your own environment can't even put up a like a picture of my family on the back wall mm, that kind mm, of thing it's, yeah there's so many things about being a renter that makes it harder to make your place a home that mm. you know we can just improve we can make this better I have flitted between being, a, I guess, a homeowner and a renter, and I, I feel when I go back into the renting world, I feel like I'm treated like a child again, you know, like I've got to have everything, <laughs> all the wall marks off the wall, scrub meticulously before the inspection, and um, it's quite interesting, the culture, but I notice if there are any, any agents are, are watching on, I know there's a lot of wonderful people who are real estate agents, they're great people, but the culture seems to be the tenant, you know, you've got to keep an eye on that tenant, you know, they might not do the right thing. That's it. And look, I actually think throughout the pandemic, there were these really beautiful stories that came forward around people who are landlords and people who are agents who were just going out of their way to be supportive and like literally changing people's lives by being making decisions that help them in times of extreme stress and in times of just, you know, wild international um, uncertainty. But we also know that the other extreme is true. Um, People who are landlords and agents can also be neglectful or at times forget that people who rent are human too. Um, and I I think there's, there's probably a research gap here around some of the drivers there, um, mm. whether that's a lack of time, um, a lack of understanding. Um, and also there are always these other intersection, intersecting issues. Um, having recently worked on something around insurance and um, landlords, quite often there's these weird pressures that come in. Like mm. we know that in a lot of landlord insurance policies now, there are things written in about how often you need to inspect a property and that you need to take photos or videos. And that's mm. a really intrusive process. I don't mm. think an insurer has thought about what does this mean for someone who rents? So all of these system things we can start to unpick and make better. 
Absolutely. We are we are concerned. We, we are very wary, actually, of the fact that uh, owners or landlords um, often have mortgages and those mortgages could be going up with interest rates. They could be under mortgage stress. So they're going to feel a bit of pain. Um, understandably, they're going to want to recover some of that through uh, through their property that they're renting out. Um, and that in turn could put even further strain on renters, people who are already struggling to make ends meet in the private rental market. We don't want to have a lot of um, additional homelessness. We can't afford that. We've got a big enough problem with homelessness and housing insecurity already. I was a little bit surprised in the election. We didn't hear a lot about a lot of major policy from either party around renters. Um, and in the territory, fifty percent of us are renters, higher than the oh. yeah, higher than yeah, the national average. Yeah, we were you know we're a small jurisdiction, but we've got a lot of people who come here want to make Darwin or Alice Springs or one of the other regions their home, maybe for a few years. They don't necessarily want to come up here sight unseen and buy a property. That's a huge commitment and a long term commitment, and yeah. especially with rising interest rates. I mean, why would you want to do that? It's a huge risk. Um, and so I think, how can we? What would you see from a public policy perspective as to how the states and territories can start to, um, I guess, unpack the impacts of all of these um, issues with post-COVID um, mm. and, and, and making sure that we don't um, lose this in terms of having a whole, uh, another, uh, I guess, another scale of homelessness altogether through mm. this uh, real crisis that we have with the private rental market? This is such a complex one, and I think it really goes to how interconnected our our whole housing system is um, everything. Whenever we're talking about, you know, someone who owns a home, mm. it is as important to think about someone who's using it for a short-term lease or what the private rental market looks like and what social housing looks like. It's yeah. one big messy system. Mm. Um, I definitely do not have all of the answers. It's so complex. But one thing I think about is that if someone has a mortgage and is in is experiencing hardship and having a tough time, there's actually a lot of institutional supports that are available. Um, so banks have to have hardship programs um, for a period of time. And there are supports and, you know, literally a phone call you can make to, to work through options for you with a bank or with an institution if you're in hardship with your mortgage. That, that is so good and it needs to remain, but we don't really have anything for people who rent. Hmm. Um, we don't have those institutional supports that are even equivalent and they're so interrelated. So what's the what's the measures we need to put in place to someone who can't afford a rent increase? That isn't just, well, now it's time for you to leave. There have to be other options because, you know, like I say, if someone has uh, being told to pay $120 more a week, I can't think of a single family who can afford that, um, to that instant ratchet up. We yeah. need to have a discussion about what's appropriate in terms of a lift, but also what support we can put in place for anyone facing a lift. I think there's a particular hardship also for a family that might have been settled in that place for three or four years, had been very good tenants, and then facing those kind of price increases just seems a little bit unseen, unexpected, certainly unforecasted shock to their financial situation. Yeah, well, actually, this came through in a lot of the research. Um, in the 2018 research report we did with National Shelter and NATO, it costs everyone when you have to move house. And people who rent face these costs so frequently. I think that's, um, it, again, another point lost in debate. People who own their own homes have this wonderful opportunity for stability. They're not paying for mail redirection and removalists and you know, scrubbing paint marks off the wall mm. every year or two, which can often be the experience of people who rent. And that doesn't even get into the the social and emotional harms that happen with that disruption. Mm. You know, do you have to change 
kids school arrangements, um, whether it's transport or literally into different school or different hospital arrangements, different medical supports, all of these things happen when someone has to move out of their home. And also in an Northern Territory, what we don't have is a tenants uh, union like that. We don't have our own uh, NATO sub-brand. We've got some excellent work that some of our legal advice services, tenancy advice services do. That's fantastic. But we don't actually have like a consumer voice of renters, nor do we have, a, I guess, a, a voice of public housing renters. Um, and I'm interested in your thoughts, especially with the hardship that's going on in, in that private rental market. Almost every day we see a story coming uh, coming out around this across Australia. Uh, is there a place for, what's the importance, I guess, of those grassroots um, NATO tenant organisations in, from your perspective? What have you seen in that space? So important, um, so, so vitally important, whether it's about a housing debate or others, because I'm, um, I'm quite involved with community legal centres working on credit and debt issues as well. I think the, the model of change where you give someone direct help, you are there in their point of crisis and you know, can help like, instantly um, get someone from, like I say, a very extreme point of personal crisis to a plan of action, and then usually walk alongside them to fix some longer term problems. That, that, and then connecting that up with an advocacy voice, I think that is such an essential component to a good public policy discussion about any problem. Um, in order to know what we need in the private rental market or the housing market more broadly, social housing, community housing, having the voice of people who are seeing the complaints and mm -hmm. working with people facing those problems, it, it helps you get better decisions. Um, it also just helps people get help. Um, I, I, um, I think it's a great shame that the Northern Territory doesn't have that infrastructure that some states are lucky to have but we know there's been a lot of changes across South Australia and others I think we've lost a few really great institutions in the last little while that I hope state and federal governments start to look at filling those gaps. Yeah I think that's definitely a pause for thought isn't it in terms of getting better outcomes. Just uh, like to uh, read out a couple of stats which really struck me from your reports 51% of people who rent are living in a home that is currently in need of repairs. That was an astonishing it. figure to me. It is. And it's, um, so in the first report um, in 2017, we asked people, you know, do you have an essential repair? And about 20 to 30% of people said, oh, maybe something really essential. But when we just asked a repair, that's 51% of people. That's, mm. um, oh, it, it says a lot about the state of our housing stock. Mm. Um, and when you get into what, what the people are actually thinking about with those repairs, it's mold in bedrooms, lounge rooms, ceilings, doors that don't close, windows that don't close, all these things that not just make a difference to a housing market, but also actually intersect with, say, an energy market. Um, it's so much harder to heat and cool your home if you can't shut a window. Absolutely. Things that really matter. Absolutely. And also one in 10, you were talking before about the insecurity uh, of tenure. One in 10 people, this was back in 2018, mind you, it might be a little bit worse than that now. I, 8% think they will be forced to move in the next 12 months. That's, that's you know, one in, one in 10, one in 12. There's a lot of people out there that are anxious about what the future I, holds. I'd suspect that number is much higher mm. um, right now, particularly I, if we were to run that survey again, I think you'd see some really acute numbers in certain regions like we've been talking about and you'd see some real worries in certain parts of Australia. Um, and that, that hangs over your head. Yeah. It's so hard to live with that stress. Absolutely. I think, again, you know, seven in 10 people uh, that uh, 
you found in that study, Australians who rent are concerned that a request for repairs could mean a rent rise. 29% uh, of people on a rolling um, periodic lease at the end of their, uh, at their end of their lease, 83% uh, of people who rent express concern about the stress, as you mentioned, the stress of moving and the costs, of course, but the stress. I mean, yeah. that's, these aren't, these, I mean, I'm thinking now, you know, we're, we're trying to get people to come here. We, we, we need people to come here. We need professionals. We need teachers. We need key workers. Um, it's such an exciting place to work here. But if people are in stress that, hey, I might not have a house in the end of the year, they're going to, aren't they going to think about going back to Queensland or Victoria? Exactly. And I think sometimes, you know, when we think about the evidence base for public policy decisions, mm. we need to think about the costs people face from a bad system, you know, and this happens in private renting, you know, if you're constantly moving, you're paying a lot more than someone else, you know, you're paying more to disconnect your energy and reconnect it or disconnect your internet service, you're literally paying more for the whole situation. But then there's this, this cost to people of just constantly living in uncertainty, or constant, very legitimate worry that mm. their home isn't going to be available in a short period of time. Mm. That's, that's a really unfortunate social cost that I think doesn't get given enough weight. We often talk about, um, at least up here, we've been talking about, I guess, striking a fair balance yeah. um, for landlords and tenants alike when it comes to the rental system. If, um, if people are watching on who are, I guess, landlords or owners, what would you say if they say, well, look, I'm worried about it. I'm nervous about that. I'm concerned about losing the freedom or the rights or flexibility that I have now. Is that... What would you say in response to that? Well, I think, um, and we're seeing it, Victoria, if you're a great landlord, you have nothing to worry about. Um, this is, and what we want in the system is more great landlords. So hopefully whoever's out there, I am speaking to you. We want more of you. Um, what these laws really do is give people comfort and certainty on the private rental end. Um, and it helps actually clarify relationships. Essentially, when someone is taking on the role of being a landlord, they're a small business provider. You are offering a service to someone and I think when we think about the rules in place right now, they're not as clear, they're not as good. Like any contract, we need to make sure that what we're getting into is very specific and that the rules are fair for both parties. So um, in part, this is about making things easier for everyone. And in part, it's getting rid of parties that aren't doing the right thing. I, I actually think one of the tensions in the debate around rental changes is that I think people who are landlords can often feel like, oh gosh, everyone thinks I'm a terrible person because I'm a landlord. There's a bit of a like anti-landlord narrative. Um, and that's because there are some terrible landlords out there. The way, the way we fix this is by lifting the standards, yeah. getting the rat bags out, growing the number of great landlords out there. Yeah. That's a great point. And just, uh, I guess, finally, in terms of the rental market system and also, I guess, the homeowner system potentially as well, you, you talk about reimagining how markets can work well for Australians. Um, what do you mean by that? And what could it potentially mean for, for I guess, us in the housing system? Oh, uh, so the housing is an interesting one because I think there's there's always got to be a point where you have to ask, is a market right here? And no is going to be the answer in a lot of cases for parts of the housing market. So I think part of the conversation has to be, what's the line where we have a social community public housing role? And I don't know what that perfect amount is, but it's. I think it has to be bigger than it is right now. It has to serve a greater amount of people. And then thinking about the, the private rental market, it would be great if we could design it in a way that actually works for people and recognises 
I think some of our rules are kind of based on this weird assumption, maybe based from decades ago, that private renting is something you might move through onto your eventual end of home ownership. And our lives are more complex and messy than that. As you know, you dip in and out of the renting and the owning market. And um, the growing one of the growing groups of renters are older women. Um, we need to make sure the system works well for everyone who's in that rental market. And that means security, reduced stress, clear rules, ability to make a complaint, um, and you know, ability to have a discussion with someone on a more equal level when something isn't working. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of narrative still seems to be around. It's not necessarily, maybe a mythology is a, hard, a harsh word, but that's been kind of like the great Australian dream of owning your own home. And and, and it is a big asset, can be the, the, the largest asset for many people and families, but uh, there are other pathways, of course. And I think certainly with um, with uh, with older women being the largest growing cohort of homelessness, if you're at 55 or 45 even, are you going to want to take on a mortgage and buy a home? Um, it's a risk, right? And and uh, it's interesting the notion that uh, if you're a renter, that somehow you haven't quite uh, haven't quite made it there. Grown up yet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a fallacy, isn't it? And we need maybe to have a think, a rethink about what options people have uh, to suit their life circumstances. Exactly. And I think it kind of ties back to what we were talking about around the idea that, you know, sometimes as a renter, you're treated a bit as a child. It's almost like the rules are written for the um, share house of people who are 19. Mm. Um, and they exist. They should have fair treatment as well. But you know, the renting market's more diverse than that. And our needs are more diverse than that. Absolutely. Erin uh, Turner, it's been a, a real pleasure having you on uh, Sharing the Couch. It's been a lot of fun. I think you could really put out some really interesting perspectives on public policy and social media and uh, and communications and I guess reimagining a better a better place. So um, all the best with your work um, at the at the center. And I look forward to watching on and seeing how that unfolds. And uh, I think there's a lot more conversation to play out in the renting and house housing space. So I'm sure we'll be looking forward to your views down the track as well and, and all the best with your work. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've been watching Erin Turner. Erin um, has uh, joined us today on uh, this episode of Sharing the Couch. If you'd like, if you've missed other episodes and you'd like to check out uh, the previous conversations we've had or conversations that are coming up, please check out our YouTube site. Just Google NT Shelter. I should say probably put that in your search engine, uh, your favourite search engine, NT Shelter YouTube, just to make sure you don't miss out. Hit that subscribe button and uh, we'll be releasing an episode every fortnight on Thursday morning. So yeah, check it out and get in touch if you've got other ideas for sharing the couch. We've got a lot of exciting people lined up and today's an example of, of, the, of the people and perspectives that we're wanting to share with you. Thank you and bye for now. You've been listening to episode eight of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.